This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Recently, Dave Rutherford on the Trout Unlimited Forum. A new fly fisher was looking for input on which flies to use in the Sierras of California. One of the more veteran fly fishers responded with this. He wrote, I shouldn't even be answering you because I've never fished any of the waters that you mentioned. However, I feel compelled to try to save you from the fate that befell me, accumulating boxes and boxes of fly tying material that I'll never use. So I googled Sierra Mountain and San Juan trout flies and the usual suspects turned up. San Juan Worm in Red, WD-40 Nymph, Adams Dry Fly, Elk Aircatus, Pheasant Tail Nymph, Leeches, Griffiths Gnat, RS2 Nymph, Glowbug Egg, Zebra Midge, Prince Nymph, Bully Bugger. Those flies work all over the country, so I recommend that you work on those first. Your idea of buying flies to use as patterns is a good one. When you get to a new area, go to the local fly shop to find out what is hatching and buy enough of those flies to hold you over until you have time to tie your own. Sometimes the hatch boards at local fly shops are overly optimistic, so ask which hatches are predominant. End of quote. Now, I think that's good advice. Uh, Dave and I have never fished the Sierras either, but, man, the patterns mentioned by this veteran fly fisher are really the same ones that we use in Montana and Colorado and Minnesota and Michigan, and, well, you get the idea. I mean, there are some flies that just flat out work anywhere and any time. They're, they're just plain work. So what we're going to do today is to share with you a half, and, half a dozen flies that we can just about guarantee you uh, will work anywhere. If, if not, uh, your money back. I don't know where you'll get your money back from, but, but I'm sure you'll get your money back from somewhere. <laughs> So here we have, uh, what we have, we have two dry fly patterns, two nymphs, one streamer, and one wild card. So, Dave, let's start with dry fly patterns. Uh, if, if we're just going to have a, yeah, if we were limited to six flies, two of them dry flies, where would you start? We have to start with the trusty old parachute atoms. And the parachute atoms has been... Uh, greatly dismissed I think over the years simply people might think of it as your father's dry fly pattern and that might be true but he's probably catching more fish than you are so uh, so there <laughs> so the parachute atoms is a modification of the atoms fly and according to Paul Schulery the atoms originated in 1922 in Michigan of all places Leonard Halliday developed it as a general mayfly Im imitation, and his friend Charles Adams used it successfully on the Boardroom River near Traverse City, Michigan, and as a result, Halliday decided to name it after his friend, thus the Adams fly, and now with the parachute uh, wings, we've got the parachute Adams. So when you say Michigan of all places... Uh... Yeah, I might take offense to that, Dave. You know, I was born there. I was born near Traverse City, so oh, really? uh, you, you ought to speak more. You ought to speak more reverently about Michigan. 
<laughs> well, I did not mean but yeah. any disrespect. I just, and, and you know, that's I interesting know. how we all think about where we fish. And I have fished in Michigan. Yeah. I've not done a ton of fishing. I've done more in the UP than I have uh, in the other part of the state. But um, I guess Hemingway, that's where Hemingway wrote a lot of his uh, his yep. little stories. Were, what was the name of his uh, short stories? Oh, yeah, the Nick Adams stories. Those are great. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. I mean, the the parachute Adams is such a great fly. And it's a relatively simple pattern to tie. I know that not everybody uh, ties uh, of our listeners. And actually, uh, I don't tie that much anymore. But this is one of the patterns that's pretty easy. It's it's got this dark gray dubbing for the body, uh, brown and grizzly hackle, and then a mixture of those brown and grizzly hackle fibers for the tail. Uh, what makes it different from the Adams is that the parachute has this vertical post of white calf hair at the front or the head of the flight, stick straight up, and and then when you tie the hackle on, you wrap it around horizontally around the base of the post, and tires refer to that as parachute style, hence the name uh, parachute Adams. Yeah, it really is a really is a great fly. Well, you gotta love the parachute. I tell you, the white post, uh, the white calf post. Uh, I mean, it, I don't know how you could fish this thing without it because it's so hard to see on the water. Bud Lilly observed that the atoms grew lighter when it went east. and But when it went west, fly tires used extra hackle, presumably to keep it floating longer in the swift currents uh, of the western rivers. Uh, I think we've mentioned the H&L variant uh, before that also has the white calf hair. They've got wings with white hair, uh, calf hair. But that fly, uh, like the parachute animals with the post, uh, is easily seen. But as as the fly moved west, um, it definitely got bigger and you know needed to weather the current a little bit more. Some of those swift currents in those big rivers in the west. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that reminds me, too, we, we aren't really talking about size in this podcast, but th- this would be a good place to make a really important observation, and that is uh, we think that size is more important than color or pattern. So in some ways, we're, we're talking about these patterns, but I would even argue that size is more important. Uh, you know, most of these flies, in between a size 14 and 20, I don't know about you, Dave, but I find myself, man, I, I fish a size 18 more than anything, and I'm not so sure that, that let's just stay in most cases, if a trout's going to take a, a size 14, they're probably, I think they're probably going to take a size 18. That's, that's just my anecdotal experience. But it's, it's not the other way around. There are times when they won't take a 14, they'll only take a, an 18 or maybe a 20, but... The, the point is, uh, size is more important than color or pattern. So I, I shared this a few years ago, but but back, oh man, this has been like 30 years ago, when I first fished the Yellowstone River below Tower Fall, uh, my Uncle Ivan was with me. Good night. He's about 90 now, and he's still hunting deer and making maple syrup and out fishing for any species of fish there is. He's a... Uh, he lives in uh, northern Pennsylvania. But we were fishing down in, in that stretch that you and I sometimes fish, and we, 
Uh, we walked by this place where there were a couple of uh, submerged logs. They had fallen into the river, and it kind of made this, this deep pool. And there was a trout that was feeding. Boy, we saw it roll. It was a big trout. And I had been fishing woolly buggers and really didn't have uh, much of a selection of dry flies that day. And, and at that point either, I didn't, I didn't know a, a mayfly from a probably a house fly. <laughs> and all I could tell was, man, they were feeding on something really tiny. It looked like a tiny little black bug. I, now I think it was probably a BWO or it was, you know, some tiny mayfly. I don't know, maybe a betus. And anyway, I looked through my fly box. I didn't have anything like that. Uh, well, actually I did, but it was in a size 14. No interest at all. So, I kept watching this trout, and I saw, okay, these flies are a lot tinier. I, I saw some kind of right in the, you know, the, the dead water right in front of me. And so I looked in my fly box. The only thing I had was a little black ant. I tied that thing on, casted it in, and bam, on the first cast. It, it, was, it was the largest cutthroat I've ever caught out of there. It was like 21 or 22 inches. Wow. And my uncle was so excited. I mean, he's the kind that you don't let a fish go. And this is back in the day when you could keep some. And so he jumped in after it in his clothes. Yeah, even, even though a PMD or maybe Craig Matthews sparkle gun might be a better pattern at times, a parachute Adams in the right size will always be better. So did you catch, did you actually catch that fish? Oh yeah, I, I caught it and he, you know, I was playing it, but then he jumped in to make sure, uh, cause it was trying to run under some, uh, a log. So he, he jumped in to make sure that, uh, we, we got that. Do you want to talk a little bit or should we talk a little bit about the purple haze variant, which is now really popular? I know last fall, you and I were fishing the purple haze with a white post and I had a, like a 14 and I was not catching anything just to confirm this point you're making. And you had an 18 and you were catching fish all day long. And that just goes to confirm the story about, or our point that we're trying to make about size, but the purple haze, anything you want to mention about that? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Dave. That's a that's really a parachute Adams with the purple dubbing instead of that gray dubbing, you know, on the body. In other words, on the, the shank of the hook. So I don't know if it's better or not. I, I think because it gives a little bit different look. I, I've had good success with that, but I, I don't know if it's been better than the other. But yeah, that that purple. So if you see a purple haze, man, I I'd be fine if if somebody said, hey, I'm you know, I'm going to arrest you and clean out all your uh, parachute atoms and replace them with purple hazes. I, I'd say, fine, go for it, because they, they seem to work as well. So, yeah, just another variation. All right, so we've got a parachute atoms. Dave, what's a, if we have one other dry fly, uh, again, we know that there's other patterns, and it's nice to match the hatch, but if we're just going with six patterns, two of them are dry flies, uh, one of the dry flies will be a parachute atoms. What's the other one going to be? It's hard, well, it's not hard at all to say what this should be. I think it's the elk hair caddis. As the name suggests, this fly imitates an adult caddis fly, and this fly has tan elk hair, although we've used patterns with the elk hair dyed black in the driftless. You definitely need a white post <laughs> if you're using that because you cannot see that thing. Yeah, so in the driftless in Wisconsin and Minnesota, we typically use the, the elk hair caddis with the dark, uh, darker hair, but 
the body of an elk hair caddis will typically be tan or green. Um, and Steve, you've tied some of these using elk hair from the elk you shot one year, didn't you? Yeah, I did. It was it was the only bull elk that I shot with a bow. I, you know, I've taken them down with a rifle before, but uh, one year bow hunting in, uh, in Paradise Valley, where my folks lived, uh, just right up, uh, really right up from the river on, on the side of a hill. Uh, I was uh, up in a little meadow, which the locals call a park, and bugled in a bull and, and shot it. And then I, you know, I heard. I thought, well, this would really be cool to tie, uh, you know, some elk hair caddis with, uh, you know, with the hide from a bull that I shot with a bow. So I, I did that. I, I I tanned the hide using 20 mule team borax. <laughs> uh, that's a detergent booster you can get at Walmart. Somebody told me about doing it that way, and and it actually worked. I mean, you know, the the hides that you get from you know, commercial supply places are going to be easier to tie with. But I thought, hey, even if this is a little bit more of a pain, uh, I, I'm going to do it. And I did. And, and man, it was a thrill to catch rainbows the next spring in the uh, in, in the Yellowstone River down in the valley. It was right during the caddis hatch, uh, just below the slope where I shot that elk. So, yeah, that, that was kind of fun. But, uh, Dave, I'd ask you this. Why is the elk hair caddis such a go-to fly if it's, if it's imitating a specific insect, I mean, you'd think you'd want something more, uh, kind of more generic, wouldn't you? There's the whole concept of attractor patterns, and I don't think anyone fully understands uh, the science of it, other than you float a big fly out there during certain seasons, and elk hair caddis would be one of those types of flies. Like during hopper season, we've used the elk hair caddis, we use that on 16 mile. Even while they were hitting hoppers, you just throw on a big... We, I think I ran out of hoppers because mine were getting killed so much from all the strikes. And I started using the elk hair caddis, and they were hitting on the caddis as well. And it just looks buggy. And it could imitate a spruce, spruce moth, hopper, obviously a caddis. You know, again, the standard size are size 14 to size 20. I even have heard of of fly fishers tying like a size 10 just to see if something would hit it that big. I forget, was it Bud Lilly or someone else talking about that, they, that he would tie these huge elk hair caddis just to see if they would hit him. And every so often you'd get a big brown or a big rainbow come up and hit that thing. But generally the sizes are between 14 and 20. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. It it really is a great attractor pattern, and yeah, I think of some of the attractors that I I like. I mean, I'll use a I'll use a Royal Wolf or like you said an H and L variant. I'll, I'll use a, a red or yellow humpy. But really, uh, if I have a caddis, that that works just as well. So what we're saying then for dry fly patterns, if you only had a couple that would be kind of all-purpose. Uh, if you have a parachute atoms and an elk or caddis, chances are you're going to, to do pretty well, and it's that size that's going to uh, make the big difference. All right, so let's talk about nymphs. Uh, there are a couple of uh, kind of couple of nymphs that, that we would uh, recommend. And I don't know, Dave, we might even differ on this, not that it's a huge disagreement. I, I, I said that maybe the first nymph I would think about would be a prince nymph, and we, we've always fished this in a beadhead pattern, so I'm just referring to it as a beadhead prince. Uh, 
Dave, do you know where this pattern originated, got its name? From the rock musician Prince of Purple Fame Haze. <laughs> that's great. Not yeah. Purple Haze, Purple Rain <laughs> Fame. Actually, that's not true. Um, so that is not true. Nor is it named after the Nigerian prince who needs your help transferring millions of dollars out of his country. <laughs> uh, no, rather the fly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the fly is named after its creator. Doug Prince of Monterey, California, developed uh, the Prince Nymph in the late 1930s or early 1940s. His original Prince Nymph had a black body, black soft hackle, and a black tail. A modification of this pattern, which he called the brown forked tail, became the well-known Prince Nymph. So, Steve, why don't you talk a little bit about how it's actually designed? Yeah, uh, the, the Prince Nymph features a peacock hurl body, and peacock hurl is just uh, uh, kind of one of the strands off of a big peacock feather. Uh, it's just wrapped uh, as the body, and then you wrap it with gold or copper wire. Now, you mentioned before the purple haze as a variation of a, uh, of a parachute atom. Same thing happens with the, the Prince Nymph. I, I think it's called a purple prince, so there, there you go. There's your... Uh, uh, purple rain reference, if you like that, if it's a prince. Uh, but yeah, if you want a purple prince, you could use some kind of a purple material for the body. But the neck consists of brown, soft hackle fibers. But really, the distinctive feature is the use of a couple of white goose biots for the wings, and then two brown goose biots for the tail. So even if you're not tying, I mean, you'll you'll look at that and say, hey, that that looks kind of cool, and uh, the fish thinks so as well. By the way, those biots make it more difficult to tie, at least for casual fly tires like me. They're, they're kind of fragile, and they never stay where I want them to stay. So if you have any tips on how to do that, uh, please comment on this. Uh, I'm happy to learn something uh, from you. So they always tie and fish the beadhead version of this fly. Man, it works. So they, why, why do you think this thing works so well? Well, Doug Prince designed this as a stonefly imitation for fast water. And, however, it's a visually striking pattern, which seems to imitate a variety of aquatic insects. Uh, the Prince Nymph is versatile enough to use it as a larger leaf fly, which you and I have done fishing in the, um, fishing in the spring for rainbows. Often we'll put the, a bigger beadhead prince on and then drop an egg pattern. So it's versatile enough to use it as a larger lead fly, like a size 14 or even a size 12 in a two-fly rig, or it works in a smaller size, a size 16 or 18 as a dropper. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think I've got other favorite droppers, so I don't really use it as a dropper. I, I probably should, uh, but I, I tend to use it as that larger lead fly. And man, we've had success catching trout on a beadhead prince during the I remember during the caddis hatch on, on the Yellowstone River in Montana, the Mother's Day caddis hatch, and during the emergence of blue-wing olives on the Madison. So like you said, it's not, you know, even though it may technically be a stonefly imitation, it, it works for other things. Dave, uh, one other, th I guess I should ask you this. I, I, I kind of jumped, jumped here into this and, and said, hey, I would, I would go with the Prince Nymph, but uh, you have another favorite, don't you, that, that actually I, I like too, but what are the other options that might be similar to a beadhead prince? I would put the, the hare's ear. There's the pheasant tail as well, but the, the hare's ear 
is just, I have caught so many fish on that. I think about, uh, I think it was two years ago or was it three years ago? I just can't remember. My mom was uh, getting uh, surgery, back surgery at Mayo Clinic and I left to, to travel back to Chicago and I thought I'd hit uh, a stream in, in the Minnesota Driftless uh, near Preston, Minnesota. And I only had a few hours because I had a, you know, from there it's still five and a half hours home. And I spent two or three hours and out of one run on that hare's ear, I was drifting and I think my top fly was a, um, I think my top fly was a, was a prince nymph and I dropped a hare's ear about six or eight inches. I remember in one run, I, I, I caught seven fish and as and it was like it was the middle of March and I, I did not want to quit, but it was three, three thirty. It was gonna be another hour by the time I got back to the truck and peeled off all my gear. But that hair's ear has just been so productive for me. So I like the Prince Nymph, and if you had talked to me ten years ago, I would say the the Prince Nymph, but I would say probably for me the hair's ear is my number one go to general nymph pattern. You know, I I can't argue with you with you on that. I, I love the hairs here. I mean, it looks so buggy. Yeah. In fact, when I've tied those before, uh, the guy that taught me to tie them, Bob Granger, said, okay, then when you're done, rough them up a little bit. And, and some of the fibers that are on that thing kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe it looks like somebody who woke up in the morning and they got wild hair. And when you put that in the water, you know, it's just, man, it's just, it's just alive. So that's, and I don't know, because the bead head's so popular, I, I think what you said before about the parachute atoms or the atoms, that uh, maybe people think, oh, yeah, that's your father's fly. Well, now everybody's using, a, you know, a prince or a bead head prince. So, yeah, if, if you wanted to substitute the hair's ear instead of a bead head prince, I doubt you'd catch any less fish. Maybe you'd catch more. All right, so that's a, that's a choice. Uh, you know, that, that works well for a lead fly. You can use it as a dropper. But Dave, thinking more about a, an all-around dropper, I mean, this is another nymph pattern, but it would be the smaller one. What, what's on the, what would be a good option there? One of the standards is the Copper John. It's just hard to beat the Copper John. This fly actually comes from a tire named John Barr. B-A-R-R. He began working on this pattern in 1993, so a relatively newer fly, and then perfected it in 1996. It uses copper wire for the uh, abdomen or the body, and then the thorax, which is near the front of the fly, has a wing case that is covered with epoxy or glue. This gives it a bubble shape. This fly also has a bead head, too, or can have a bead head, too. I always like to use it with the bead head. Yeah, I love the bead head. I always use bead head patterns with nymphs because uh, they can uh, they can sink and even with uh, other kinds of flies as well that I'm fishing under the surface if I want to get them down. So that's a great pattern. You know, I, I should mention too the poor man's version of this, or I should say the poor fly tires version, that would be me, <laughs> is a brassy. Yeah, a bead head brassy. And that's really simple. All you do is you put a bead head on, then you wrap a few twists and turns of peacock curl. And then behind that, you, you tie, you have your red or copper or black wire. By the way, that's not necessarily the order. You always put your bead head on first. 
then you, know, you tie on the, the copper wire, and then probably last, you tie in that peacock curl. But that's all, uh, that's all there is. It's a very simple. Uh, I suppose you could add bias at the back, like a copper john, but I'm going to tie a, a beadhead a brassy, then that's, I'm just going to keep it simple. It's really a minimalist fly. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And I should say, I think you pointed this out, but the, the name Copper John and even even a brassy kind of comes from that copper brass colored wire. Uh, I remember reading once that, that John Barr for probably five or six years didn't uh, tie it any differently. And he had people urging him to try some other colors. So then he tried green and and, and now people we use red or, or black. I, I like red. You and I have had good success sometimes fishing for spring rainbows with that. And, and even though fish are uh, trout uh, don't see color quite the way we do, I think there's enough difference in that that, you know, there might be something to it. I, I like that red version. Well, these nymphs really work well because they imitate mayfly or caddis nymphs. Really, just about almost any kind of fly in the nymph stage. I don't think we really know on some of this stuff. All we know is that they work. And so they're imitating something in the nymph stage. Yeah, so that brings up the question, Dave, what are other patterns that might rival the Copper John? I mean, we're not saying this is the only nymph or this is the greatest nymph ever. It just seems to be a good all-around pattern. I mean, a nymph, like you said, a nymph is a nymph is a nymph. But what other, what other options might there be? Well, there's two others that I keep in my fly box. One is I keep you know, a handful of zebra midges. Uh, size 18, maybe even size 20, and also the WD-40 nymph. Uh, you know, and, I, and this was mentioned in the comments by the veteran fly fisher at the beginning of this episode. And the WD-40 is another really, really awkward-looking fly, <laughs> but it, it simply works. And um, I will often use that as a dropper and let it sit in the film and. Uh, it doesn't really sink that far. It's such a light, especially the real, the small ones. So you drop it off of, uh, drop it off uh, maybe six to eight inches, depending on what you're fishing, of course. Uh, I really do like that WD-40 as well. WD stands for wood duck, by the way. Good, not water displacement uh, 40th attempt like uh, the, you know, the WD-40 <laughs> that we use like duct tape. Exactly. It'll fix everything. <laughs> You know, Dave, that does remind me, you, you made a great point, uh, that WD-40 is great just under the film, and that would be a reason, though, to have some flies in any pattern that, that don't have a bead head, because there's a time where you want to be fishing those right under the surface, especially if there's a hatch going on, you uh, you got a dry fly on the surface, but boy, have a, have a nymph like that to just right under the film. So that would that would be a good one. You know, I want to tie that sometime. I've looked at the instructions for that. It's it's actually pretty simple, but it looks kind of cool because you you fold the uh, yeah kind of the the front. Oh, I can't remember exactly what it is now. It's a feather. You fold that back over. But anyway, I have to do that. And yeah, zebra midge is one that you typically fish a lot deeper. It's it's kind of a, got a black body, and then is it? I think it's silver, isn't it? Silver. I've seen gold as well. Yeah. ribbing you know with with wire and and i mean that that's one that technically imitates uh, uh what what are they is it some kind of snails or something i can't even remember but 
you know, stuff right in the bottom, yeah. I mean, maybe in the mud, but, but we've had good luck with it, just tumbling it through as well. Okay, so we talked about two dry flies, two nymphs. So we have two flies left. One of them is going to be a streamer. And, man, for a streamer, it is hard to, to go with anything else than the woolly bugger as an all-around fly. Now, it's unclear who gets credit for the woolly bugger, but it's definitely a modification of the woolly worm. And the, the woolly worm uh, simply doesn't have a tail. The woolly bugger has this marabou tail. And, Dave, what is it that makes this fly work so well? No idea, but conventional wisdom says the woolly booger imitates <laughs> leeches. But, you know, it might pass for crayfish, minnows, sculpins, and large aquatic nymphs, such as helgramites and damselflies, stoneflies, even dams, even, even dragonflies. Trout will chase it and go into attack mode because, it's you know, it's a high-calorie meal. It's more bang for your calorie. Yeah with uh with a with a uh with a woolly booger and compared to a tiny mayfly it's like the difference between an 18 ounce steak and a and a chicken nugget and i'll take the 18 ounce steak any day of the week man i'm right there with you dave that's exactly right uh there there are two main parts to the streamer if you haven't seen one probably you have but uh, first you've got the body of a woolly bugger. That's just, that's just chenille that's wrapped around the shank of a, of a long streamer hook, like a four X size hook, uh, usually sizes six through 10 are the most popular, but with a uh, hackle, you know, wound through it. So you tie in that chenille and then, uh, then you tie hackle through it. But then the second part of it is you have this marabou tail that runs behind the body and both the hackle and the marabou make the streamer look really active as it darts through the water. Uh, yeah, the most popular colors for these things are black or olive or brown. And I've, I mean, I've not fished with a white one. You can actually use white. I've used those in another pattern, the Dalai Lama. But you could use white. Uh, I've even tied it using red chenille with black hackle and black marabou, and I. I used that uh, successfully up in Highlight Reservoir up above Bozeman uh, to catch some of the big trout that are in there. We go out and float to that uh, when I live there. So, except, yeah, that's a, that's a... Except when I went out with you. Oh, I know. That was that was such a bummer. We got there on the day when the, the water was high. They hadn't let water out of the reservoir for a while, and it had gotten high, and we, we just did nothing at all. Uh, so that was frustrating. But anyway, woolly booger is great. All right, so that's our streamer. What about a wild card? We have one more fly. Dave, what else might we recommend just for an all-around? You're going to have, if you're going to have six fly patterns, you've got a couple of uh, dry flies, a couple nymphs, you've got the woolly bugger as your streamer. What else might we go with? I, again, this to me is a slam dunk. It's It's got to be the San Juan worm. And I have caught so many fish in the driftless on this when nothing else works, especially in winter. You and I, through the years now, have developed some patterns of fishing in the winter, usually in January, one or two times in January, one or two times in February. And sometimes I'll, I'll put a a woolly booger is my top fly, so to speak, and then I'll drop a San Juan worm, 
and I'll put a strike indicator on there and drift the two of them, dead drift them. And so, I tell you what, I have so much success with that. So there are as many accounts of this pattern's origin as there are variations of it in the fly bins at your local fly shop. Uh, what we know for sure, or maybe we know for sure, is that it, a fly fisher developed this fly to imitate the red worms in the silt-coated silt channels of New Mexico's San Juan River. The fly fisher is unknown to us, although I've heard several suggested names, and the time period was likely the late 1960s or early 1970s. So this is an older fly, and all the variations, you get the purple worm, and you get the yellow, I mean brown, and I mean the colors are the colors of the rainbow, but I tell you what, the red San Juan version of this, San Juan worm, is to me so effective. Oh man, it is, and the pattern is so simple that it's silly. I mean, all it is is like a two-inch length of red chenille or fly tires use a lot of different things even some will use small red tubing and you just wrap that thing onto a scud hook that is a hook with a curved shank and that's all i mean it is the easiest fly in the world to tie so it's a great place for beginners to start if you're just learning to, uh, to tie you kind of want to use the mechanics it's really not even a fly so it's simple some will put a bead head on it uh, you can do that but uh, man, I, I just try to keep those things uh, simple. And yeah, I mean, I guess there's no mystery as to why this fly works, right? You know, it just it, it imitates a worm, right? The kind which resides in, in, the, in a silty river bottom. And it's just a great go-to pattern in really almost any condition. But it works especially well after a rain for obvious reasons, because those worms get kicked up along the banks and and drift downstream and it results in churn that can loosen up the earth along a bank uh, or, or the silt at the bottom you know during a rainstorm or during a, you know the rivers are start to blow out worms get displaced by this churn and it's really hard for a for a trout to to turn this down and I have to tell you this is this is odd but I always feel a little guilty when I catch fish on a San Juan worm I'm not sure why if it, it's because I think well you know, this this is really a worm, and it's not really a fly. Oh. So I'm not really fly fishing. I'm worm fishing. Oh, that's true. But here, here's my solution to that, Dave. So if you have a purist who asks you later, hey, what were you using? Just tell her or tell him that you were simply matching the hatch. You were imitating aquatic life below the surface, <laughs> and you'll be telling the truth, right? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I, I love using the San Juan worm because I love catching fish. So there you have it. There you go. Well, there are the six patterns that we recommend. Two dry flies, two nymphs, one streamer, and then our wild card is this uh, San Juan worm. Uh, I don't know, maybe by way of summary, Dave, would you say what? Don't, don't overthink what's in your wallet or, I mean, your fly box. Uh, <laughs> I, that's, yeah. That to me is the big idea of this is that, yeah, don't overthink it. And especially if you're a new fly fisher, I think as you get older, you just go, you know, I, I've got a handful of these things that always work. Now, there is the occasion, right, where there's something very specific and you don't, if you don't have it, that's why it's important to go to your fly shop, you know, depending on the time of year. But, you know, if you're fishing those runners in, in the spring or the runners in the fall, 
And, you know, you've got to, you know, we didn't talk about egg patterns today, but, you know, there's just some basic things that are going to work. And, and, and again, I think the important thing here is it's really important that you have the smaller sizes because, um, yeah. you know, if things aren't working at size 14 or size 16, they may start working at size 18 or size 20. Yeah, I've even had times where size 18 was too big and they would take a 20. You know, that reminds me, Dave, remember remember Bud Lilly's line? He said that back when he owned a fly shop in West Yellowstone that, that he'd have days where a fly fisher would come in and the guy would, you know, Bud would say, so how was the guy? Oh, it's been a great day. What'd you catch him on? Oh, I, I caught him on this, just this little baby. This is the only thing they were hitting. Bud Lilly <laughs> said by the end of the day, there were, there were about 12 or 20 uh, only things that the trout were hitting. So, yeah, there again, I think you're right. Don't overthink it. Uh, use some basic patterns. All right, it's time for great stuff from our listeners. Here are a couple of comments on our podcast on tips for landing bigger fish. Uh, the first one comes from Richard. He says, on the Truckee, and Dave, if I recall, I think it's a river that runs out of Lake Tahoe. Huh. Uh, flows from Nevada into California. I've never fished it. I've heard about it. But uh, Richard says, on the Truckee, any cast could hook a giant brown or rainbow. My PB, I think that's personal best, is around 26 inches. Wow. And that is a huge fish, that isn't is it? That is amazing. He says, I never take the fish out of the net for pictures or for holding it, so the fish I land never need any assistance. I'm gunning for a 30-incher, but I use 5X tippet, so it will be a miracle if I land it. Five minutes is about normal. Uh, I think there's terms of time for playing the fish is, is what he's talking about. Five minutes is about normal, especially during high water and with no soft edge. Love your articles. Thanks. Wow, that's great. Boy, a 5X, a 30-incher on a 5X? Oh, my. Much better than we are. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's that's great. Uh, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad he shared that. It's always great to hear what what other people are are doing, and um, yeah, I, I admire that. Just saying, hey, I'm I'm not going to take it out of the net. I'll get pictures in the net, and uh, you know that's a commitment you're making. That's that's great, and yeah, on a larger fish like that, five minutes may seem like a long time, but it's it's not. Uh, you, you may need that. So hey, thank you, Richard. We appreciate that. Uh, there was another comment on that podcast, and it's one from a guy named Dave. Actually, this is our friend Dave Cumling from Montana. Uh, we usually don't give last names, but we just had him on our podcast recently, so uh, he's no stranger, and I, I don't think he uh, minds. So this is what Dave said. He said, I enjoyed the Landing Big Fish podcast. You provided some excellent information. The only thing I might add is that there is no rule that says a trout must be landed where it was hooked. Now, what do I mean by that? If I have a big fish on, I try to move the way it is going. If it's strong enough to swim upriver, this is generally a big fish, then I move upstream. If it turns and moves down, I follow it. Assuming the big fish has pulled some line from the reel in either an upstream or downstream run, I try moving in the direction it is going, and I try to walk line back onto the reel. And I think by that he simply means as, as you're walking, you're, you're reeling that slack. Yeah. Then he says, staying in the spot you hooked it and trying to drag it back to you increases the chance of losing the fish and increases the amount of time you have to fight the fish 
which increases the chance of mortality from lactic acidosis. Man, that is a really insightful uh, comment. Thank you so much, Dave, for that. And that's that's true. I mean, I saw you do that, Dave Getz, uh, when you landed that big uh, fish that you caught uh, a few years ago, a couple of years ago on uh, on the Madison, just out of West Yellowstone. And uh, you followed that thing down, and it's good that you did. Or uh, uh, that fish have you into its backing? Almost, almost into my backing. I don't. I, I'm trying to think how many fish I've had into my backing. I don't know if I've had any fish into my backing. Now that means you're doing it right. But man, that, that is such a great comment from Dave. And it's you know, one of those things that, uh, that when you hear it, you say, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But sometimes we, I guess we act like, uh, as, as fly fishers, like, well, hey, I, I've got to stay right here and haul the fish in. Well, uh, maybe follow it a little bit as you're, as you're playing it. Yeah, you, know you have what? a better chance. I, I, to me, what makes that so uh, powerful is it's so obvious, but yet I'm thinking about how often I will stand in the same place and, and worry about not being able to get a bigger fish in when, in fact, I need to be moving towards wherever that fish is headed. That just makes complete sense to me. But I don't think, again, yeah. this is stuff that you're really not taught anywhere, right? And until somebody points it out right. to you, like, if it's headed downstream, why don't you go downstream with it? Right. If it's going upstream, go yeah. upstream with it. You know, it's just yep. it's just good stuff. And you have to do it safely. And so, hey, go back and listen to the podcast we did with Dave Cumley and on uh, wading safety. There, there's been a few times where I've I've wanted to follow a fish, but I thought, well, okay, the the risk is going to be greater than the reward. If this thing, if I lose this fish, I lose it. But I'm not in a good position where I can follow it down along the, the bank or, or in the river. So, yeah, you have to take that into account as well, but, but that's really helpful. Well, that'll do it for today. I think we had some good stuff. I uh, hope you found it helpful. Thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing.